Well, very good morning. Um, it's great to be with you here at Redeemer, and I bring a very warm welcome from everyone at Chalmers. It's great uh, to see how you guys are getting on. We had uh, Sam along at the prayer meeting um, this past week, and just great to see how things are here. Um, let me pray, and then we'll turn to God's Word. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for our time this morning to sit under it. We thank you for this church family. And Father, as we grapple with what it looks like to be a Christian in our everyday lives, we recognize that everyday life is messy and complicated. So help us to hear what you have to say rightly and clearly with humble, open hearts and help each of us as we seek to apply these things into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How is being a Christian, being in Christ, to affect our everyday lives? How does it affect our marriages, our parenting, our being children, our work? How does it affect how we interact with non-Christians? These are the questions that our passage this morning addresses. But before we turn to these verses, it's worth recapping kind of where we've got to. Um, in the book of Colossians, you've been looking at it over the past um, weeks. And Paul's been writing to warn the Colossian Christians against the spiritual salesmen who are trying to flog them a better Christian experience. They were claiming to offer a sort of supernormal Jesus plus life. But in reality, it was a subnormal Jesus minus version of Christianity. And what was Paul's response to that? We saw in chapter 2, he said, don't be deceived. There is nothing lacking in Christ. There is nothing to be added to Christ. Christ is everything. He's in everything. And he is your life. He is the one who gives you more so don't move on from him. We don't try to add to him, but rather live in him. Be rooted in him. Walk in him. Be established more and more in Christ. Now then that raised the question, well, that's very nice, but what does that actually look like? What does it mean to live in Christ? And that's what chapters 3 and 4 have been all about. And Sam really helpfully summarised a couple of weeks ago is grounded godliness. This grounded godliness involves taking off and putting to death the old self and putting on the new self. But this godliness, this spiritual getting dressed, if you like, is not done in order to get us closer to God, but it's a godliness that we live because we are already in him. And we've seen over the past few weeks how that impacts all of our lives, how living in him affects every area of our lives. It affects our past, our future, and our present beings. It affects the church family, how we live and interact with each other. And then last week we got to chapter 3, verse 17, which said, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so now from verse 18, what Paul's going to unpack is what does that really look like 
in our everyday lives? How do we live the life of a saved, free person at home and at work? How do we interact with non-Christians as a saved, free person? We're going to look at that under three headings this morning. Christ, our life at home, at work, and before outsiders. And the first of those, um, or the first two of those headings are covered in the section from 3.18 through to 4.1. And before we dive into that, I think it's worth just a couple of sort of overarching um, thoughts to keep in our mind as we work through what Paul says here. Firstly, what he's speaking about here is how we live as Christians and not how we become Christians. They're not here as a way to get us closer to Christ, but rather they set out how we're to live because we're already in him. We've seen that over the past couple of weeks. We see it again in this passage, the explicit and repeated basis for the behavior that Paul is calling for here is the fact that Jesus is Lord. Seven times in these nine verses, he ties it back to the Lord. So if you look at verse 18, for example, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Why are wives to submit? Not because it was or is culturally appropriate, but because it's the behavior fitting of those who live in Christ. We see that again in verse 20 and 22, 23, and so on and so on. Tying it back, why are we doing this? Because this is the behavior that pleases the Lord as we look to serve him. This is how we rightly respond to God, not earn his favor or grace. Indeed, it's the freedom that we have in Christ that's going to enable us to live like this. Secondly, these things, they embrace equality alongside godly authority and leadership. In each of the relationship pairs that we're going to see here, husbands and wives, children and parents, workers and bosses, there is in view a pattern of authority and submission. And in 21st century Collington, that can sit a little bit uncomfortably with us. Because we live in a culture where leadership is often held in low esteem. Where in people's minds, the idea of exercising authority is equated with authoritarianism. And we need to shift our minds from that. And I hope we'll see over the next few minutes that what is in view of the godly Christian leadership and authority is a million miles from that picture of a sort of overpowering authoritarian rule. And I trust we know as well that there is nothing in this that is applying any inequality between these different groups, between men and women, between children and um, adults, between those who are in positions of authority or otherwise. We are all created equal. We're all made in the image of God. We've see, we see that throughout the Bible. We see that even here in this letter. Do you notice Paul, he addresses each of these groups directly. He speaks directly to the wives, to the husbands, to the children, to the parents, to the slaves, to the masters. The expectation is they would all be there in the church like this, listening to these letters read out. And therefore, everything that he said so far in this book is going to apply to each and every one of them equally. All that he said about being one body, all he said about being one in Christ, applies equally to all of them. 
And thirdly, just before we dive in, this passage, it deals with real everyday life. And real everyday life is complex and messy and difficult because every area of life is affected by human sin and deeply so. And therefore, many of us are going to come to this passage and listen to what the Bible is teaching on these areas in the context of personal experiences, of marriages, of relationships with children and parents, or work situations that are not good, that are destructive, that are difficult, or even abusive. And as we grapple with what the Bible says here about living out our Christian life in the day-to-day, we're going to need each other. Whether that's a small group or just one or two others, we're going to need to pray for one another to help each other think through and work through what does this mean in practice for us. So I'm going to really encourage us, let's be, be having real conversations about real life with one another. So let's turn now to look um, at what Paul says to these different groups. First, um, Christ or life at home, um, wives and husbands from verse 18. Look with me. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What does it mean for wives to submit? It's a voluntary willingness to recognise and put oneself under the leadership of another. It's to accept and embrace the husband's God-given responsibility to lead in the home. Now, is it significant here that wives are called to submit while later on we'll have children and slaves are called to obey? And yes, I think it is. I think it's a recognition here that the relationship of a wife to a husband is different from a child to a parent or a a worker to a boss. A marriage is a partnership of equals in which the Christian wife, out of her love for and submission to Christ, voluntarily accepts and embraces the husband's God-given responsibility to lead in the home. And it's a relationship in which the Christian husband loves his wife. Now, to say, I love you, that's, that's easy, isn't it? Uh, probably as an aside, it's not something I say to Christine enough. Um, so can I encourage all of us guys, let's make sure we do actually say to our wives, I love you. But that's, that doesn't, that's not sort of, I've done that, right, that's sorted. Um, I've ticked this off. What does it mean to love your wife here? It's not just words, it's actions. It's a way of life. In the parallel passage to this in Ephesians, Paul unpacks this a lot more. And he talks of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. It's a sacrificial, self-giving, purposeful love. And did you notice in verse 19, Paul gives a practical test of this. He says, do you love your wife? Yes, yes. Are you harsh with her? The Bible knows the human heart, doesn't it? How easy it is for bitterness to creep in, to justify itself and become more and more entrenched. We are so often, we set up unrealistic ideals for our wives and then we're disappointed when they don't meet those unrealistic ambitions and hopes and aims that we've had for them. 
And so the feelings of disappointment find expression in harsh words. Husbands lead, not harshly or selfishly, but lovingly. So how do we make this real in our marriages? There's not an easy answer to that. We need to listen to and embrace what God's word says here. Pray through what this means in your marriage. Talk it through together and pray through it together. Tim and Kathy Keller, in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, they give an example of what this um, looks like playing out in practice. This is Kathy um, writing. She says, In the late 1980s, our family were comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited by the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. I expressed my doubts to Tim, who responded, Well, if you don't want to go, then we won't. However, I replied, Oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this lobjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Now, Tim made the decision to go to New York City and plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The whole family, Kathy writes, my sons included, consider it one of the most truly manly things he ever did because he was quite scared, but he felt a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with. But it is clear that God worked in us and through us when we accepted our respective roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. So wives, ask yourself, do I empower and support my husband to lead? And husbands, ask yourself, do I lead in a way that makes my wife feel loved and valued? The next uh, groups that Paul turns to is children and parents. Um, So if we look again at verses 20 and 21, he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I think the, the instruction in verse 20 to children, that applies to Christian children who are living under the care and protection of their parents. So I don't think there's a direct application here from verse 20 to those of us, if we're grown-up children, not living under the care and protection of our parents. I think the Bible does promote an ongoing deference and honouring of our parents, but the obedience that's called for here is done in the context of household living. We also need to be careful how we apply this to our children who are not yet believers. We must be very careful that we don't present their obedience to us as parents as in some way earning them favour with God. This is an outworking of how a believer is to live. But to children trusting in Christ, 
Living in him means obeying your parents in everything. However ridiculous your parents may seem, and not just the stuff that you're happy to do, but in everything. Now, if we stop and think of that, we might begin to get a bit tetchy. Think of the scene. Son, John next door has been really annoying me again. Could you go and put a nice scratch down the side of his brand new car? Well, I'm not sure about that, Dad. What does Colossians 3.20 say? Off you go. Now, what should the son's response to that be? Now, I hope we all know his answer should be no, but why? And yes, that's a, that's a really silly example, but there's a really important point behind this. It's how do we, how do we think these things through? Think of a teenager who's gone to a Christian camp and has become a believer and is back home with his non-Christian family. How does he live this out? As we'll look later, how do, um, how do workers in difficult situations at work, how do they think about obeying in everything? So we need to see the context of what Paul is writing here. These are principles about how we live in Christ. The end of verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. To do something evidently displeasing to the Lord in obeying our parents would hardly be pleasing to God in the first place. So in the same way that wives' submissions to their husband is in the context of their ultimate submission to Christ, and workers' obedience to their earthly masters is in the context of serving the Lord. So children obey in the context of pleasing the Lord. Because what we have here, these are grown-up principles for how we live in Christ. We're to come at them with a genuine desire to wrestle with them, embrace them, and with an eagerness to live like this. We're not here to sort of to seek loopholes or to narrow their scope so that we have to do less. We're to wisely engage with them. But at the same time, we, we do so recognizing that there will be times when pleasing the Lord means we have to say to a dad or to a husband or to a boss, no, I can't do that. Then he goes on, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, why the reference to fathers here? He's talked about parents in the last verse and then fathers here. In the Colossian households, the fathers would have had the primary authority over children in those households. So I think in our context, it's valid to apply this both to mums and dads. But as dads, we're to remember that we do have the responsibility to lead in the home. So we mustn't just abdicate or delegate that parenting to our wives. So how are we to live as mums and dads in the Lord? It says, by not provoking our children. Don't wind them up. Don't stir them up. The idea is almost, don't stir up a rebellious attitude in them. And then these words, lest they become discouraged. Endless criticism. Unfavorable comparisons with their siblings or with you when you were a kid. Never feeling that they can ever do enough to be, have earned your favor. Paul does not want the children of Christian families here to be disciplined to such an extent that they lose heart and give up trying to please 
their parents. One commentator, to paraphrase, said, It is no use a dad bemoaning the inability of kids to be strong and self-reliant like himself when he has used his strength to crush and undermine them. Instead, as parents, let's encourage our children. Yes, we're to teach and discipline them. But let's be pointing them to our loving Heavenly Father. We can't make them Christians. Only God can do that. But we can encourage, call and train them to willingly and joyfully live as disciples of the Lord Jesus. Pointing them to their loving Heavenly Father. This is what living in Christ in the home looks like. These verses are not meant to be a rod for us. They're not meant to make us feel that we have to present an image of a perfect family at all times. Rather, they're a wonderful description of mutual obedience in the family. Wives submit as husbands lovingly lead. Children obey as parents encourage. And none of this, none of this is truly possible without Christ in us. We cannot do this in our own strength. They are the outworking of Christ's transformation of us. It's hard, we'll mess up, and we'll need to say sorry and ask each other for forgiveness. But this is family life lived to the full in Christ. So let's seek to live this way. And let's be praying for one another in this. Do we pray for the marriages in this church? Do we pray for the families in this church? Can I encourage you, as you do, to be praying for these things? Secondly, Christ, our life at work. How are we to live as Christians at work? How does being a Christian affect how we behave in our place of work or at school or in our studies? The context Paul's writing into is one of bond servants and masters. Um, that's not sort of slavery in the way that we would think about it. Um, it's, but equally, it's not exactly like workers and bosses, but I think it's helpful and right to apply it um, into our context in that way. So let's um, look at what he says here um, through these verses from verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As employees, what are we to do? We're to do a good job. If you're a teacher, be the best teacher that you can be. If you're a cleaner, be the best cleaner that you can be. If you're a joiner, be the best joiner that you can be. If you're a doctor, be the best doctor you can be. If you're a student, be the best student that you can be. And we're to obey the instructions our boss gives us. As we've touched on earlier, there is a line. If we're asked to do something illegal or immoral, or that is suppressing the truth of the gospel, then it's right and we should say, no, I can't do that. And it's entirely possible that in the years to come, some of us will face those situations in our workplaces. But when we reach that point, let's have a track record of integrity and faithful service behind us. Now, some of us have terrible bosses. When we're treated unfairly, when we're not valued or when we're lied to or about, this teaching seems a real struggle. And the key to unlocking here what Paul says is understanding why. Why do we obey our bosses and seek to do the best job we can? 
It's because our motivation is that we are working for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, heart, work heartily as for the Lord. Work from the heart. We're motivated from the heart because the task we've been given to do, whatever it is, whether it's menial or boring or impossibly complex or unreasonable, we want to do it because we're doing it for our Lord Jesus. Because we are full-time servants of Jesus. It's our mo- he is our motivation and he's our identity. We're not defined by our work, but who we are in Jesus. So in Christ, we've been set free. Set free to do everything our bosses ask of us. We do a good job as Christians because we want to. Because we recognise that in our work, we're serving our Heavenly Master. Our motivation is not to earn our earthly boss's favour. It's great, isn't it? This was written 2,000 years ago, and yet some things don't change. Verse 22. Obey them in everything, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers. Does that not sum up so much of the modern workplace? Doing things to get noticed or to look good in front of the boss or to avoid getting into trouble. Beavering away on that spreadsheet or whatever it is while the boss is in sight and then switching back to BBC Sport when he's gone. Don't be like that, Jesus says. We may well get noticed or look good or gain those promotions as we do a good job. But that is not our motivation. Our work is how we serve the Lord Jesus. And it's from him that we'll receive our reward, our internal inheritance. And what of us, those of us who are bosses, as pastor says, treat those who work for you justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Don't have favourites. Don't show partiality. Now, I don't think any of us at the beginning of this year would have predicted what the world of work would look like now. From bustling offices to everyone working at home, new processes and setups to ensure social distancing, viable booming businesses now facing a very uncertain future. And you find yourself as a Christian boss in the middle of all that. What do you do? Recognise the responsibility you have to those who work for you. That's the thrust of what, behind what Paul's saying here. Look out for them and care for them. Many of them will be struggling. And it's easier to hide that behind a face mask or on a Teams resume call. Look out for those who work for you. And you're going to have to make difficult decisions. And you can't and you shouldn't seek to avoid that. God has placed you in that position and given you that responsibility. But what this passage reminds us is that it's important how you go about making those decisions. Do it justly, fairly, and impartially. This is what living with Christ our life at work is. Thirdly and finally, Christ or life before outsiders. This is from uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. And in this final section, describing how being in Christ is to shape our everyday lives as Christians, attention is turned outwards. Outwards from the home and the work to how we interact with non-Christians. The question is, what can an ordinary group of believers, such as that church in first century Colossae, such as redeemer here in Collington in the 21st century? What can we do to make sure that outsiders hear of Christ? 
Now, the language of outsiders might seem, might grate with us, it might seem a bit unfriendly, um, or like this is kind of them and us crowd. And perhaps you're a Christian, a non-Christian here, um, either here in the building or listening in. And I want to make clear that the point here is you should feel very, very welcome. But there is a distinction here. Perhaps one way of thinking about it is um, my wife, Christine's um, family, they have what's called family Christmas every year. It's basically a get-together in the run-up to Christmas with the whole extended family. So all the aunts and uncles and cousins, they all get together for a fun-filled Saturday. Now, when Christine and I started going out, I got an invitation to family Christmas, which was very exciting. Um, now, when I went, I was made to feel very, very welcome. Um, I had a great time, but, but I was an outsider. I wasn't part of the family. I continued to be loved and made welcome by them, but in order for me to become an insider, something had to change. In that case, marrying Christine, and then I became part of that family. And likewise, here, as a non-Christian, we want you to feel very, very welcome as part of Redeemer. But to become part of God's family, something has to change. You need to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. And that's what Paul is longing for here. He's longing for outsiders to become insiders, to become part of God's family. So the question is, what can an ordinary group of believers like us here at Redeemer, what can we do to make sure outsiders hear of Christ? Two things. We speak to God about people and we speak to people about God. First, we speak to God about people. We see this in verses two to four. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We start with prayer, lots of it. Pray with perseverance and with thanksgiving. Paul here, he's asking for prayer for himself, that God would open a door for the word, that he would be given opportunities to speak about Jesus. Let's do likewise. Let's speak to God about people. And secondly, we speak to people about God. Verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Why does speaking to people about God come at the end of this section in how we are to live in Christ? In part, I think, is because as we live out our everyday lives as Christians, in being a dad, a husband, a wife, a worker, a boss, a child, a parent, these things ultimately show off to the world something of who Jesus is. And there should be that consistency between what we are saying and how we're living. And it's implying those principles of how we live out our everyday lives that we can walk in wisdom towards outsiders. What Paul's going for here is he wants the Colossian Christians to resist the wrong kinds of outside influence, but nevertheless to stay engaged with their fellow citizens and to seek to win them to Christ. And so to us, we're not just to sort of form a holy huddle here at Redeemer. 
We need to engage with our community, doing so wisely and purposefully, longing to see those outside God's family come in to God's family. And with all the restrictions and challenges of COVID, it can easily be the case that we become more inward focused. And I've been challenged by the words at the end of verse 5 this week. Making the best use of the time. How we interact with our non-Christian friends and family and neighbours and colleagues has changed. It's different at the moment. But their need of Jesus has not changed. As he's writing this, Paul was in prison. He was subject to many restrictions, and yet he's still prayerfully seeking opportunities to speak of Jesus. And yet we live in a crazy, messy, complicated time. But let's make the best use of this time, and let's keep seeking to speak of Jesus. And verse 6, we're to speak with gracious, warm, and winsome words. Paul has in mind here a church that, that communicates the good news of the gospel and wins attention by the attractiveness of its life and of its speech. And as we do this, we remember that God is at work. There's this wonderful interaction of how we, we're working, God's working. We pray it is God who opens the door. We speak. It is ultimately God who opens their eyes. So as we close, living life to the full is living life in Christ. That's not a life that chases after spiritual experiences or observing rules and diets and rituals as the spiritual salesman would have us believe. It's a life of grounded godliness. It is living everyday normal life in light of who we are in Jesus, knowing that we are safe and saved in him and therefore seeking to serve him in our marriages, in our parenting, in our being children, in our work and in our studies, and sharing that life and the truths of this gospel with those who don't yet know Jesus, so they too can be part of his family. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in him, that through his death and resurrection that we have been saved and set free. Lord, we pray that we would live out transformed lives that reflect the reality of who we are in Christ. Help us as we ponder on these things, as we seek to help one another apply them to the reality of our daily lives. And Lord, we pray for opportunities, even this week, for each of us to speak the truth of your gospel to those who don't yet know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.